have a Bible, turn with me back to Matthew chapter 5 once again. If you're new, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. But those of you who come to City Church uh, regularly should know by now to bring your own Bible so that you can make notes and then you can go back and you can review them on your own. If you're new to City Church, we're in a series of sermons from the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're calling this series Stranger Things, Life in the Right Side Up. We got the idea... You may have recognized this. That we got the idea from the hit Netflix series. And if you're familiar with the series, you probably uh, recognize the, the set up here. Similar to the Netflix series, the Bible teaches that there is an upside-down world. However, unlike the Netflix series, it's this world, the physical world around us, that the Bible says is upside-down. Man's rejection of God has turned creation upside-down. It's really nothing like the life that God created for humanity to live. One day, still in the future, Christ will return. He will turn the physical world in which we live right side up again. But for now, and this is the main point of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants us to know that it is possible to live right side up in an upside down world by becoming a disciple of Jesus. And in this sermon, he's describing what a right side up kind of life Looks, looks like. Last week, he described it as a life in which anger and contempt for people is being replaced by a radical concern for the well-being of others. Can you imagine how different our world would be without anger and contempt? Well, this, met, this morning in the passage that we're going to look at, Jesus is going to deal with distorted sexuality. And I want to pick up the reading today, chapter 5, verse 27, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow. Well, I asked this last week uh, as well. How in the world could Jesus expect to be taken seriously when what he talks about is clearly so irrelevant to life in the 21st century? I mean, last week we saw that Jesus began the body of his sermon by talking about anger and violence. And then he moves straight from anger and violence to sex. I do not know what he's thinking. It is not like sex and violence is an issue in our culture. It's not like in the last year in America... We've seen well-known celebrities and businessmen and politicians brought down by the hashtag MeToo movement in sexual harassment scandals. It's not like there's an online company in America that goes by the tagline, life is short, have an affair, and seeks to connect married people who are looking to have an affair. It's not like we live in a world that pornography is so easily available that it has become an epidemic ruining the future sex lives of boys and girls and the present sex lives of men and women. How in the world can Jesus expect to be taken seriously when he talks about such irrelevant pie-in-the-sky subjects? And of course, just like I said last week, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Far from being irrelevant... Far from being pie in the sky, which many people accuse Jesus of, Jesus plunges right into the depths of the upside-down world in which we live by talking about sex and violence. And in this passage, Jesus is going to point to what a right-side-up looks like in terms of a person's sexual ethic 
But before we get to that, I want you to see what Jesus has to say about the sexual ethic of the upside-down world in which we live today. And I want to just start with this. I'm going to call, it, I'm going to call this first point the justification of lust. The justification of lust. Notice that, that Jesus starts this section of his sermon with the very same phrase that he used when he started last week's passage about murder. Except in this case, he's talking about adultery. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, same thing that he did last week. On the one hand, he's quoting the law that God gave to Moses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it said, you shall not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You know, God gave Israel the Ten Commandments to help them flourish as a people. And as they obeyed the Ten Commandments, all of the nations of the world around them, in all of their upside-downness, would look at Israel, and they would see this nation living right side up, and they would see that under their God's rule and reign, they were flourishing as a people and as a nation. And the idea was that the nations of the world would see how great God is, and they would turn from their destructive pagan idols, and they would worship Him. That's why He gave them the law in general. God gave this particular prohibition against adultery because adultery does the opposite of help people flourish. It wreaks havoc. It wreaks havoc on the lives of the individuals involved as well as the families and the the friends of each couple. But, (coughs) excuse me, it also wreaks havoc on the larger culture. No culture, no society in which adultery is practiced or ignored or justified can flourish. And so God in his love and in his mercy and his goodness prohibited adultery. So Jesus on the one hand, you know, he's quoting straight from God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. But on the other hand, he's also quoting the distorted teaching of the religious leaders in Israel who took the letter of this commandment without the spirit of the command. And what I mean by that is that they argued that all God was really concerned about was the physical act of adultery. They taught that a right-side-up sexual ethic was simply, don't commit the physical act of adultery. Everything else is fine. That's what they taught. Now, why? Why would they want to do that? Eddie, would you mind to get me a bottle of water? I'm sorry, I'm having a throat problem, sorry. Please show your appreciation for Eddie doing this errand for me. Thank you, Eddie. You could move a little faster, Eddie, uh, if you wanted to, but that's, that's all right. I've really got a problem here. Why would they want to reduce? Why would they want to just take the letter of the law without the spirit of the law? Well, because it's so much more convenient to limit the definition of adultery to just the physical act of, adult, of adultery. It's clear, it's concise, and it also has the wonderful benefit of not requiring me to look inside at the condition of my heart. And he says, this is what legalists like to do. They like to focus on external laws rather than dealing with the inner heart. Uh, When I came out of seminary, I was without question (laughs) a legalist. Uh, And I'll just give an example. Thank you so much, Eddie. Really do appreciate it. Thank you. Um, there had just been, you know, I was talking about the fact that I was a legalist. There had just been this whole rash of evangelical leaders that had been exposed for having affairs. So in response to this, religious leaders everywhere started coming up with 
uh, all kinds of laws that would prevent men in ministry from having affairs. And one of those laws, for example, was never have a woman other than your wife in your car with you alone. Well, okay, the young legalist that I was swore never to do such a horrible thing. But not long after I graduated from seminary, my female administrative assistant, who was about 35 years older than I was at the time, which put her well into her 70s, uh, she fell outside of the church, on the sidewalk outside the church, and she hit her head on the concrete, and she was bleeding profusely, like, you know, most head wounds do. And uh, it turns out she needed stitches. And she needed someone to drive her to the emergency room to get stitched up because she was dizzy, she had a terrible headache, the bump on her head was so swollen that it was beginning to obscure her vision, so she couldn't drive herself. But I had a law, (laughs) I had a law that said never have a woman in your car alone because that could lead to an affair. Laws, you see, have no exceptions. What if someone saw me with a woman other than my wife alone in my car? They might think that I was having an affair. And so here's how ridiculous and hateful legalism is. I, and I'm embarrassed about this, I made her wait until I could find another woman to come up to the church and take her to the ER. And that, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's hateful. It's ridiculous. Here I was, a minister of the gospel of grace, letting this poor woman sit bleeding because I was more concerned about that law than I was her well-being. That, you see, is the essence of legalism. It's a focus on the external to the neglect of the people around you and to also to the neglect of your own heart. I was more proud of my behavior than I was concerned about the hatred in my heart. And so this is what the religious leaders in Israel at the time were doing. They were limiting adultery to merely the physical, external act of sexual intercourse with a married woman. And what that did was that it had the effect of justifying the lust that drove their adultery. Only physical adultery is wrong. Lust, everything else, that's all fine. It's not a big deal. Good sexual ethic, a right side up sexual ethic, just don't commit adultery. But Jesus won't allow the justification of lust. Which leads me to the second thing that I want you to see here, and that is the condemnation of lust in this passage. Verse 28, Jesus says, But I tell you, okay, so he had quoted the he had quoted the law, he had quoted the religious leaders. He says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now couple of dangers associated with this verse that I want to warn you about. The first is that if you don't pay close attention to what Jesus is saying, you could walk away with false guilt. Um, You know, there are some translations of the Bible that uh, with this particular verse, I mean, they're good translations overall, but but with this particular verse, they they can become careless. And So they might read something like this. Anyone who looks at a woman and desires her. Maybe your translation says that. Here's another one. Anyone who looks at a woman with desire. He says, you know, that they're guilty of lust. That's not true. Those translations make it appear that the temptation to lust is wrong. That's not what Jesus is condemning here. I mean, temptation isn't wrong. 
What Jesus is condemning here is a man looking at a woman with the purpose to desire her or to lust for her. That's what he's condemning. It's a conscious decision of the will that Jesus is going after here, not the temptation. Okay, so that's one danger associated with this verse. You could walk away with false guilt. Here's the other danger. Jesus is not saying, he's not saying if you have lusted for a woman, you might as well go and have a full-blown affair with her. He's not saying that. Because the impact and the consequences of actual physical adultery on the lives of the people involved, the couple, the spouses, their, their kids, their friends, the community at large, those consequences and that impact is always worse than lust. But what Jesus is saying is that the act of adultery always begins in the heart. It doesn't happen out of the blue. All of the elements of a physical act of adultery are present in lust other than actual physical sexual intercourse. And though the impact and the consequences of physical adultery, as I said a moment ago, are worse than lust, lust is still incredibly destructive to individuals and families and and communities and whole cultures. Sexual harassment, for instance. The degradation of men and women and children in and through pornography. Just a few examples of the destructiveness of lust on 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 people and on a culture. And like physical adultery, no individual or group or people or society at large can flourish where lust is justified. And like I said last week, yes, I am looking at you, America. So Jesus condemns lust by calling it adultery. He also says in verses 29 and 30, gives us a sense of the seriousness of it. He says that it's worthy of hell. So he's arguing here for a sexual ethic that is higher than merely not committing the physical act of adultery. He's condemning Lust. Now, I suspect that I haven't, said, I haven't said much so far that's particularly new to anyone. I mean, that's probably what you would have expected. If I would have told you that we we're going to talk about adultery and lust today, it probably, it's probably, what I've said so far is probably about what you would have expected to hear in a church. There's something else you need to see here that I think isn't obvious, and that is the cause of lust. So we talked about the justification of lust. We talked about the condemnation of lust. I want you to see the cause of lust. Because what Jesus does here is really very genius. Look at what he says in verses 29 and 30. These are the verses that I think you were probably blown away by when you read them. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Those are stunning words. You know, when people go to deal with lust, the first thing we do is that we try to deal with it externally. I mean, it's just like the law that I told you about earlier. You know, pastors were having affairs, so don't have a woman in your car alone. It's an external thing, right? So what we always do when we're trying to deal with lust, the first thing we do is we try to deal with it externally. I'll throw away all of my technology so I won't look at pornography. I'll ask someone to hold me accountable. I won't go to the beach because it makes me lust. Or in some cultures, we think we can eliminate the problem of lust by requiring women to cover their bodies with a burqa. What Jesus is doing in these verses, he's trying to grab your attention. He's trying to shock you. What he's doing is, is he's extending 
that external approach to lust out to its logical conclusion. If you're going to try to approach lust externally, why stop at throwing away your computers and your phones? Why have people hold you accountable? Why make women wear a burqa? If external remedies will solve the problem of lust that leads to adultery, just cut off all of the offending body parts that make adultery possible, and you'll be fine, right? Now, he really doesn't believe that. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to point to the absurdity of external laws as a cure for internal lust. Not that, by the way, not that there's anything wrong with accountability. Uh, I think that can be a good thing. Not, not that there's anything wrong with limiting your use of technology or maybe not going to places that stir up lust. Those things can be healthy. <laughs> One time, many years ago, when I uh, was single, I had a, I had a roommate who uh, was going to a, uh, a bachelor party at a strip joint, and he told me on his way out, he's a Christian, he told me on the way out, pray for me. <laughs> I'm going to a strip joint tonight. No, 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 no. See, that, look, I, I'm not going to pray for you. Just don't go to the strip joint. Now, see, those external things can be, I mean, they can be helpful in dealing with the symptoms of the problem. But they don't deal with the core, the cause of the problem. Because the cause of lust isn't external, it is internal. It is in the heart. And, of course, Jesus said that exactly later on in the book of Matthew, uh, this very same book. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, uh, false testimony, slander. He's saying, you know, cut off all the parts of the body you want, but a a mutilated stump of a person can still lust because lust is a matter of the heart. The cause of lust, you see, is not physical. The cause of lust isn't your technology. It's not the way women, it's not the way women dress. Cause of lust isn't that you don't have enough accountability. The cause of lust, and I think this is going to surprise many of you this morning, the cause of lust is contempt. And you say, wait, Jeff, where in the world do you see that in this passage? Well, what you have to understand is that the genius of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that the order of the subjects that he hits is intentional. He started the body of the sermon last week with anger and contempt. And we saw last week, we talked about the fact that contempt makes the person you feel contempt towards subhuman. So like it it means you can do anything you want to them because they're inferior to you. So when when a man lusts for a woman, for example, he isn't thinking about how valuable she is as a person. He isn't thinking about the totality of the woman, that she's been created in the image of God. He's not thinking about her dignity as a human being, her intellect, her giftedness, the importance of her emotional well-being, or how deeply God loves and cares for her. He's not thinking about any of those things. He's thinking about how he can use her body for his sexual pleasure in any way he wants to. All she is to him is a body to be used for his pleasure because... Here it is. His pleasure is much more important than her well-being because she is subhuman. She's inferior to him. That's contempt in action in the sexual context. And once you realize, see, Jesus, Jesus deals with contempt first 
So that when we get to lust, we recognize that if you can deal with the contempt in your heart, you can also deal with the lust. Lust builds on contempt. Contempt is the cause of lust. And once you realize this cause-effect relationship between contempt and lust, you begin to understand, and I think you guys have, I think most of you guys have been thinking about this through the sermon. You begin to understand that it is no accident that Jesus has been restricting his comments to men and their lust for women. Like, I, I bet you you've been thinking, does he not understand that women sometimes lust for men too? Well, of course he does. He understands that. And, and of course, all of the same principles here apply. But Jesus is not just condemning lust in general in this passage. He's condemning the culture of contempt toward women, which fuels lust. In other words, by restricting his comments to men, Jesus condemns the culture of misogyny that is part of an upside-down world. That's what misogyny is, you see. It is contempt for women on a culture-wide scale, treating women as inferior, as second-class citizens to men. Contempt for women is why pornography is so degrading in particular to women. Contempt for women is why a great deal of pornography is dedicated to violence toward women. Contempt for women is why sexual harassment happens in the workplace. Contempt for women is why boys on college campuses and other places won't take no for an answer. Contempt sets people up as subhuman. And if you're inferior to me, I can do anything I want to you in any realm, including the spiritual. And so Jesus is saying to men who want to live right side up, he's saying we've got to deal with our contempt for women that fuels lust this contempt that we have learned from the upside-down world in which we live. And I can imagine that this comes as a shock to some of you, especially to those of you, uh, especially to, to the younger women in the room who have listened to the steady drumbeat of secular feminist teaching that accuses Christianity of being patriarchal and oppressive to women. I can imagine it's a shock to you to hear that Jesus is anti-misogyny in pro-women. See, what what many of you don't realize is that Jesus was pro-women before feminism ever existed. Jesus here is elevating the status of women here by attacking the contempt for women that manifests itself in lust in an upside-down world. He's saying women are not inferior to men. They are not less valuable than men. They are not subhuman. He's saying that women have dignity because they're created in the image of God. He's striking a blow at the misogyny that has existed since Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. People who think that Christianity is patriarchal and oppressive either haven't read the Bible or they don't understand it. And look, if there are some churches and some Christians who are patriarchal and oppressive to women, it's not because of Jesus' teaching or the Bible. It's because human culture, ever since Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, has been patriarchal and misogynistic. It's why women in the first century were uneducated, viewed as second-class citizens. And as we will see next week, they were divorced by men sometimes just because the men got tired of them. It's why women in some cultures are punished for adultery while the men who they commit adultery with go free. It's why men in some cultures can divorce a woman simply by texting her. 
It's why men routinely discard the wives of their youth for much younger women than their ex-wives. It's why women feel the need to compare themselves to the airbrushed images of women on magazine covers and Instagram. The culture of the world has always been misogynistic, and Christianity's view of women has always been subversive to the misogynistic culture at large. It has always viewed women with more dignity than the culture. This is why Jesus, excuse me, this is why Christianity was so countercultural when it came on the scene in the first century. It protected women from sexually predatory behavior by teaching that God designed sex for marriage and marriage only. That would have blown the minds of first century people. And it protected women from that kind of sexual predatory behavior that allowed for sex outside of marriage. So, don't ever let me hear you. Men or women say that Christianity keeps women down because it's not true. Like our culture keeps women down. Christianity's always been subversive to it. Every time a man lusts for a woman, every time a man watches pornography, every time a man sexually harasses a woman, he degrades her. He expresses contempt for her. But ladies, I'm going to say this to you, and I realize how dangerous this is. But every time a woman posts a provocative picture of herself on Instagram or gives her body away to a man outside the context of marriage because that's what the culture says is good, Even if she otherwise calls herself a feminist, she is degrading herself and she is promoting misogyny and undermining the value of women in general. It's our society that is misogynistic. It is our culture that is misogynistic. And one of the ways that it promotes its misogynism is saying that sex is good outside of marriage. It's fine. And yet what happens is that it leaves you, ladies, Victims, often, of sexually predatory behavior that wouldn't otherwise happen. Christianity is counter-culture. It is subversive to our culture. Contempt for women is what fuels male lust. And it's also what fuels the overall misogyny that exists in an upside-down world. Now, while we're on this subject... Just the very briefest digression here. (laughs) Did you notice that when Jesus speaks here, he only uses two genders? Men and women. Now, once again, is he just ignorant? Is he he old-fashioned? Is he irrelevant? Is he not aware of the postmodern idea that gender is just a social construct? Why does he do that? Think about this. Ladies, to protect women's rights, we must be able to say what a woman is. Like if postmodernism is correct, that the body itself is a social construct and the gender is a social construct, it's impossible to argue for rights based on the fact of being female. We can't legally protect a category of people if we cannot identify it. Okay, end of digression. The cause of lust is contempt, and Jesus is condemning the uh, the contempt of an upside-down world for women. Jesus was a feminist before feminism ever existed. Ladies, 
you know what, if you want to call yourself a feminist, fine, go ahead. I, I mean, that's fine. But just understand something. All feminism really did was it changed, it, it took the identity of women and it changed the identity of women from whatever a man says about her to her career. That's what feminism did. Jesus says, your value as a woman has nothing to do with what a man says about you or what your career is or isn't. Your value is that you were created at the image of God and you have dignity. And I died on the cross for you. So call yourself if you're a feminist if you want to, but understand you don't need to because once you say that you're a follower of Jesus, you have just elevated the status of women far beyond what feminism can ever do. Jesus was a feminist before feminism ever existed. Finally, the cure. What's the cure? What's the cure for lust? Because if the cure for lust isn't cutting off body parts or anything external, what is the cure for lust? And again, the order of this sermon is so genius. It is so important that you see the the order of the sermon. Jesus began the sermon. We saw this at the beginning of chapter 5 in the introduction of the sermon. He begins by saying that anyone and everyone can learn to live right side up by becoming his disciple. What's the first step of becoming a disciple of Jesus? You have to come through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it was at the cross that God showed his deep and sacrificial love for humanity. Love always costs something. And God sacrificed his own son as a way of showing his love for us. And he did this because it was the only way to deal with human sin. No external code of conduct can atone for human sin. No law can fix what is wrong with humanity. Only the cross could do that. And so Jesus willingly, voluntarily died there, gave up his own life for us there on the cross out of love for us. And so a right side up sexual ethic is governed first and foremost by the sacrificial love of God for people. The cure for lust is the cross of Christ. The cure for contempt of women is the cross of Christ. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is writing about the effect of the cross. And, and, and he says that, that, that all of the distinctions that the world makes between people, the, the values that it sets on people based on race or gender or social status, he says it's all dealt a death blow at the cross because at the cross, everybody's equal. In a right-side-up world, people see one another as equally valuable to God. They see no one as subhuman. There is no hierarchy. There is no treating one kind of person as inferior to another. The cross is the cure for lust, and it is the cure for the contempt that fuels it. Would you bow your heads with me? And in response to this sermon, more importantly, in response to what Jesus is saying in this passage, men, I think the first response is for us to acknowledge the contempt that we have fallen prey to toward women in our culture, that we've learned from the culture at large. And the fact that we often express this contempt in the form of lust. 
Could you own that? It's hard to look inside your heart. It's hard to say that about yourself, isn't it? That you have contempt in your heart for women, but it's what fuels lust. And then could you bring all of that contempt through the cross of Jesus Christ? And could you ask him this morning to change your heart so that your sexual ethic becomes governed by the sacrificial love of God for people? In other words, man, that you would sacrifice even your desire to lust, you would sacrifice that for the well-being of another person. Would you do that? Ladies, perhaps you need to be honest with yourselves this morning about maybe how you have undermined your own dignity and value. And the dignity of women in general in the culture, you've helped promote misogyny, perhaps, in some ways. Maybe it's something you have posted to social media. Maybe it's something you've sent to a man. Maybe it's something that you gave away. Maybe you gave yourself away to a man just so that you could hold on to it. your body. Perhaps it's time to take a look at that and own it. And if that's, if you're guilty of any of those things, don't, don't leave here feeling guilty. Don't leave here with shame. Bring it to the foot of the cross. Christ died for all of that too. But would you look at Christ on the cross and what he did for you and would you recognize that there, once and for all, he defined your value. Lord Jesus Christ, these are hard things for us to hear. It's hard for us to take a close look at our hearts. But we thank you that you don't leave us with just the guilt and the shame of who we are inside, but instead you have died for all of those sins and that you have you tell us to leave them there. And, and then by your resurrection, you tell us that you will make us new from the inside out. And so like the song that we sang and that we're going to sing just so thankful that our yesterdays are gone and that we've been made new. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. 